from Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Music City, this is The Safety Exchange. Where we exchange ideas for businesses on common sense loss control and risk management. So you can focus on what matters most. I'm Larissa Featherstone, CEO of Johnston & Associates and AccuSure Claim Services. And I'm Justin Gray, Director of Loss Control for Johnston & Associates. And this is The Safety Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back, everyone, to the Safety Exchange. On today's episode, we're excited to get the opportunity to talk about all things industrial hygiene. We hope to provide some insight on combustible dust and also dive into air quality and why this should be important to every business. Our guest for the show is Tom Hunnamrinker. He's a certified industrial hygienist with over 35 years of experience. Tom has worked for several companies such as Shaw Industries, Propex Fabrics, and Amico Fabrics. He also happens to be our senior IH consultant at Johnson Associates. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing this morning? I'm uh, doing well. Thanks. Good. Good. What is IH? I mean, what, what if you were going to tell somebody didn't know a thing about safety, what would you tell them? I would tell them that industrial hygiene is the uh, evaluation of worker exposure in the workplace for exposure to chemicals, other stressors, kind of the health side of the worker uh, total occupational exposure thing. Different from the safety side, but the industrial hygiene is more looking at worker health. Okay. It's the part of industrial, or it's a part of safety that most people just don't understand. It's the techie side. Is that right? Well, there's some technical side to it, of course. Um, you know, the OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and, and they have standards on safety, which most people tend to focus on affects most people and most employers, but there's also the health, the H side of the OSHA that kind of is where I work in. I guess that would probably be important right now with con considering with what we're going through with the pandemic and all, is it, is there application for what you do in that or, yes. or can there be? Yes, there is. Of course, that's a public health uh, issue, of course, more than an occupational health, but it does, of course, as most employers know, bleed over into the workplace. But uh, I get a, um, I, I've had fun evaluating how people are uh, looking at the mask and the mask issue. Um, of course, I'm used to looking at respiratory protection and protecting people from uh, things in the workplace from outside and protecting the respiratory system as opposed to, you know, the masks that people are uh, wearing now as part of the pandemic is a source control of virus and droplets from, from, from a person going out and affecting someone else. So it's kind of a reverse of respiratory protection. So I'm kind of getting a uh, kind of getting a kick, uh, kind of evaluating what people are saying about masks. So it's, it's protecting things from, from going out rather than things from coming in. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, let's back up and, and kind of start because I'm, I'm interested in how, how do you, how does a person decide to, to get into the field that you're in? What, looking back, what made you, what made you get into this? Well, some people may decide to get into it, but <laughs> I find most people kind of fall well, into safety. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, yes, and in my case, that's true. I kind of um, I don't want to say fall fell into it, but it was kind of a serend uh, it was an opportunity that came up uh, I, when I was in college. Um, in my major, which was biology and chemistry, obviously very science oriented, I was thinking. <laughs> 
I was thinking of going to medical school. So that was how I got into that, that, that realm in, in college. And it became apparent that that wasn't going to work out exactly right. So I, I needed to fall back. And uh, it happened that at the University of Cincinnati, they have an industrial hygiene postgraduate program that I happened to see some information on. And I happened to work part time with a lady whose husband was in the program. So I started talking to her about it and, and decided that uh, after hearing about it, that, hey, this is pretty, pretty cool. It's scientific based and I still would get to work with people. It's it's kind of a um, kind of like medical field, yeah. scientific working with people. So uh, I decided to look into that. And next thing I know, I'm in the uh, graduate program at the University of Cincinnati. Awesome. Very interesting. So when I think of IH, and I think a lot of times, um, I know a lot of what we do is, or what you do is very different than this, but I think of the movies and things like that where, or the TV ads where you hear about like silica or uh, silica or other asbestos, things like that. Does that fall under that realm? Yes, it is. Um, you're think I think you're referring to the, the tend to be lawyer ads. So yes, I, I do. I am. But, uh, Yes, the asbestos and the uh, mesothelioma. There's, of course, um, the the funds that are out there for mesothelioma victims that the lawyers are are, are uh, working with. So yeah, that's all part of it. Um, back when I first started in the field, asbestos was a very uh, big big thing um, back in the '70s and '80s. Uh, it's kind of gotten to where people are. In, you know, aware of it and it's under control now, but of course back then it wasn't. And that's carrying over now into these lawsuits in the, in the. So uh, a lot of what you're doing is trying to prevent new things along that line from our new exposures for workers that are on the job. Is that kind of that H aspect? That is it. Yes. Um, and of course there's new chemicals, new challenges, things coming into the workplace and into uh, manufacturing type settings all the time. So the work never never dries up in industrial hygiene. There's always new stuff out there to, to have to investigate and check out. Did you ever investigate any Skyline Chili when you were in Cincinnati? <laughs> I did. Uh, Skyline Chili, of course, is a um, famous or infamous uh, chain of restaurants that that serves chili and and is uh, well known around the Cincinnati area. Describe it for us, because Larissa doesn't know I have what it is. No idea what Skyline Chili is. Okay, it's a dish where spaghetti and chili are combined with all sorts of different toppings, any topping that you can you can think of. Loads of cheese. Cheese, um, meats, different things, and it's uh, quite popular. There's, besides Skyline, there's other chains too. Chili in Cincinnati is a big thing. So wait, so it's spaghetti noodles, and then they put basically chili on top instead of marinara or yes yes yep it's unique that is unique yep. it's unique i'm having me make spaghetti tacos from iCarly but um that sounds even stranger chilean i guess it's not that weird it's it's sounds good it's really good really good really good once it in a while good. every now and then it's an acquired taste though you have to get used to that combination but yep. it, it, a lot of people love it yep Chili's not that different than meat sauce, is it? Not really, no. I, mean, <laughs> I guess you'd probably have some some cumin, some things like that versus versus marinara, yeah, but yeah. So I think a lot of people don't know too. There's applications for for IH even in an office environment um, with with ergonomics and things like that. Am, am I 
Am I right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Ergonomics is a big part of, uh, as I said, the health side of yeah. uh, the worker aspect. And I've done a lot of uh, worker office evaluations where, you know, computer setup, chair setup, very important to the, the well-being of the worker in the office. And uh, you got to get that part right. So it's good to do evaluations whenever possible of ergonomics in the workplace. Yeah. And that'll help, you know, prevent things like carpal tunnel, that, that type of stuff for, for office workers or, or people that are sedentary workers, so to speak. Right. Right. Of course, the big thing now in ergonomics, well, I don't know if it's a big thing, but it's kind of a trend in the last few years is um, the sit stand concept where uh, the worker alternates sitting and standing to kind of get movement and, and, and um, not be so sedentary for eight hours a day. And, you know, so that's a recommendation sometimes is made to kind of get an alternate uh, sit stand scenario. So uh, I know also it's been in the news recently, and I know a big focus of industrial hygiene recently has been compostable dust, which I think most people um, are not quite sure what that is. But I know it can be a huge health concern in addition to potential um, not just health breathing in dust, but dust exploding. Can you give us some examples of what that is? I think most people don't realize dust can even explode. Sure. Yeah. Dust, uh, if it's in fine enough particle size and gets put into the air in, in a kind of confined or can, uh, small space, can explode if there's an ignition source, kind of like a gas or a vapor. Um, it's not as common as a fire from a gas or vapor, but it does happen. OSHA has had a standard for grain handling, which is a which is a type of organic dust for many, many years. So th- this is not a new concept, but it's kind of come up over the last 10 to 20 years because there's been some incidents in industry. There's been, many people will remember uh, in the news in 2008, the Imperial Sugar Plant in Georgia that had a huge explosion. I think there was 14 fatalities with that, where sugar dust got to an ignition source and exploded. Huge explosion, huge, huge fire. And as I said, 14 people killed. And there's been other incidents in the last 10 to 20 years. A uh, pharmaceutical company had an explosion where the total facility was was destroyed thanks to a uh, explosion of combustible dust, where dust got up, plastic dust got up into the rafters and the ceiling and the joists and the beams, and found an ignition source, and there was an explosion. So really, it's it it's things that you normally you never would think be flammable. I like, would never think of sugar yeah. as igniting. Or corn dust or, or grain dust. I mean, normally it's stuff that you wouldn't think of being, even like metal too, right? Right. It's metals, especially aluminum, can be very combustible in air. Wood, of course. Yeah. Wood dust, sense. very expensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, grain, uh, plastic, plastic dust can be explosible. Um, so it can happen. And the big term in it, you know, you know, always hear people talk about is, is, is deflagration. And correct me if I'm not saying that right, but talk us through that. What, what actually is that and, and what, what happens? Well, a deflagration is the, kind of the next step after the explosion where um, a lot of times there's a secondary type explosion. There'll be a flash from an initial explosion and then uh, dust will fall say from the rafters and stuff, and there'll be a secondary explosion and it'll be even more forceful. So that, 
So that initial explosion happens, and then it shakes more dust loose, basically. Right. And then the explosion continues on through the right, through the right. facility or, or plant or whatever. Right. And that pressure wave is usually stronger than the first oh, one. Wow. So that results in more destruction. Yeah. So could you walk us through like one of these that has happened and how exactly that occurs? And I mean, just, I mean, you said 14 people, that's a lot of people yeah. in a big plant. So. Right. Well, Not I'll a lot of warning signs, I guess I'm trying to. Well, there are, or there were warning signs that they found out usually, not usually, all the time when they do investigations of these incidents, there there were warning signs. Just were they noticed? Those warning signs noticed, that's the thing. Uh, the Imperial Sugar incident was the result of a um, leaks in a conveyor system that was conveying sugar and the fines from the sugar uh, collected around this conveyor and there was some sort of ignition source. They, they think it was a, um, a hot uh, belt that heated up and caused the source of ignition, found the sugar dust, and there was an initial explosion. And once there was the initial explosion, then it went ahead and there were secondary explosions on throughout the facility. So if that right concentrate, actually the wrong concentration of dust is, gets into the air and there happens to be ignition source there, much like a gas or a vapor explosion, there's going to be an explosion of the, uh, that dust. I think what's interesting to me is a lot of times I think kind of lay persons thinking of an ignition source, you think of like a lighter or something, but you're talking about a hot conveyor belt that puts off, like it, it doesn't take somebody kind of setting it on fire, which is I think what a lot of people think of. Right. An ignition source can be anything that, that sparks, anything hot. A um, spark from welding or grinding, A uh, like I said, a hot conveyor belt that heats up and 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 starts a little fire or whatever there could be a, there's lots of different types of ignition sources even static can be an ignition source for some very uh fine or combustible combustible dust so i'd imagine aluminum would be pretty susceptible to static type environment it could be yeah. it could be yes yeah. yeah um so in most of these situations the conditions that you know i think of it as like i guess in my mind it seems like Everything would have to be perfect for this to happen, but apparently it, it it's actually pretty easy if if there's a heat source, or it can be. Right, it takes that right or wrong combination yeah. of things to, to to kind of come together all at once to to make the perfect storm or imperfect storm, if you want to say it that way, to to cause the event. So when somebody calls you in for a for a for a dust hazard analysis, what without getting extremely technical, what what do you do when you go in and do that? Sure. The dust hazard analysis is a evaluation of what the facility has as far as dust, where it comes from, where leaks might be, how well they are keeping dust off their, the floors and the rest of the facility, and looking at possible ignition sources um, and seeing if there's situations where all this might come together. So it's, it's the prevention side of, you know, of the big boom. Of the big boom. Yes, yes. yes. If uh, Imperial Sugar had done a dust hazard analysis and taken action on it before the 2008 explosion, probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And and how do how do they mitigate dust like that? Is it is it a combination of different different controls like exhaust systems and and vacuum systems or kind of talk through that too? There's a lot of different things that can uh -huh. be done depending on the situation, but ventilation and sealing up leaks, tightening things up, keeping dust from coming out of equipment 
you know, that's pretty straightforward, not straightforward to do, but it's obvious that, hey, you got to get this dust out of here. So keep it from getting out of the equipment. If it does get out of the equipment, housekeeping, keep things dust off the floor, cleaned up uh, periodically, not blow dust around with compressed air. Uh, that's a big thing in a lot of industries. It's easy for someone in, in a plant to take the compressed air hose and psh, blow that dust and clean up their piece of equipment. But the, really, they're just blowing the dust to another part of the facility. And putting it in the air. And, and uh, putting it in the yeah. air. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that dust, sorry, I'm going to... No, go ahead. So that dust, is that same dust? I know people, a lot of times when they think of dust, they think of more the air quality issue for breathing and things like that. Is that... Are those the same or are they different? Is it the same type of dust that cause the issues or? A lot of times it is the same dust, um, but the levels of dust in the air that you're looking at from a person's health standpoint are much lower typically than you would need for there to be a combustible dust explosion. If there's enough dust in the air for there to be a possible explosion, there's been a lot of dust, a lot more dust than uh needed that's going to start affecting affecting someone's health. So this isn't like dust like you think of in your household that is the issue. This is more in the air and high or higher concentrations. Right. And, and it could be, like I said, any type of dust, the wood dust, the metal dust that, um, and as I said, those lo levels that affect a person's health are much lower than would be needed to, to cause combustible dust exposure. We're talking about metals like iron and aluminum dust, could be wood dust, could be a lot of plastic. Plastics are explosible, but also could be a health issue. Things like that. Yeah. And this is this is typically going to be in an enclosed environment. Right. One of the criteria for there to be a combustible dust explosion, there's got to be some sort of containment of, okay. in, a, in a room or a piece of equipment or, or something like that. A, a typical, not a typical, but a, a common thing that might be involved in a dust explosion is the dust collector itself in a facility. So if the facility is picking up dust through a uh, ductwork to a dust collector. They've been known to blow up if some sort of spark gets in there. Okay. Cool. What are, what are some other kind of hot button topics in IH? Is, is arc flash something you guys deal with in IH, or is that more in the electrical, like electrician type study? Uh, that's that's really more in the, yeah. in the in the electrical on the safety side of it. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. What about radiation? Do you ever deal with? with that? Sure. Yeah. Radiation is under the realm of IH uh, because it is a health, potential health issue for employees in a, in a workplace. Uh, my working with radiation is usually to make sure that a radioactive source that's maybe used in a measuring gauge or something in a, in a, in a plant is contained and isn't, isn't going to get out. And, and, and that usually doesn't happen unless there's some sort of accident, some sort of somebody drops the gauge that's the radiation gauge that, that they're using or something like that. Um, a lot of industries use radiation to measure thickness on um, sheet of plastic, plastic sheets, things like that. And so you have to make sure that the program is in place. All the containment of that device is, is uh good so the radiation isn't going to escape um x-ray is another common thing in industry to measure things so i just did a evaluation of an x-ray machine that measures thickness on a plastic sheet uh, at a facility recently just making sure that 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 gauge that they use is well guarded 
and it's all intact. The radiation is going to get out, basically. So have you ever been to a facility where, um, and I know you go out there a lot of times being hired to make sure that there's not some major issue, but can you think of, and obviously we're not using names of companies or anything that you've been in them and thought, oh my goodness, this is an explosion waiting to happen, good thing, got out here soon enough, or do you feel like most companies are really trying on this, or people don't know whether or not they even need to be inspected, or... Right. Well, if you have, if in your business you have any sort of dust in your facility, you need to look at if it possibly can be explosive. But to the first part of your question about, um, have, have there any been, a, oh my gosh, instance, instances? Yes, there has. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and this this one happened to be at a facility where where it was both a combust combustible dust issue and an employee exposure issue. So this is this is a good example. It, it is a um, distillery and and it was corn dust oh wow uh so uh they had to clean the corn silos uh monthly i think it was and they basically the employee had to get at the opening of the silo and use a reach through the opening use a tool to clean and scrape and rake down the sides and there was a lot of corn dust which uh was coming out of the the opening and they were exposed to it. So exposure standpoint, they were breathing it. Breathing it in, yes. And there was also, since it was corn dust, that's an explosion hazard too. So that's a good example of where there's a dual um hazard there, the, the explosion and the employee exposure. So what we recommended there was to and they had already tried this but didn't really uh, follow through with it is put a use an opening at the top of the silo and put some ventilation up there and, and draw air up through upwards instead of having the air come out through the bottom opening where the employee was um so that's what they they tried and it seemed to work got things got that got those levels of corn dust down so a lot of times you after you do something like like that you may actually help them make the process easier and more efficient Yes, uh, because they, in that particular case, they they took some of the uh, manual labor out of the equation. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So so that helped out quite a bit and made it more efficient. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand it. And, and same with like ergonomics too. Ergonomics so on the inside of a manufacturing type environment, oftentimes you'll be able to help them make things more efficient and less. You know, it, it won't take as long. I think that's a mis. Uh, I think a lot of people think safety, IH, all of that is a added extra, but I agree. I think whether it's behavioral type situations or um, health type ergonomics, that type thing, um, sometimes that has a bad, a bad word to it, or people think that, oh, that's an added extra type thing. But a lot of times I've seen it makes people way more efficient in addition to keeping the employees safer. Yeah. Do you ever do anything? This is, I'm asking this maybe something don't even deal with at all, but like with mold and, and breathing, like with air quality? Sure. Yeah. I've done a lot of mold evaluations, uh, a lot of times in office type environments. Um, yeah. Wh whenever you have water that gets into buildings, you're going to have potential for mold. And so um, uh, what I do when I go in and do a mold evaluation is look at where the water's been. That pretty much tell you where there might be mold and just start looking in above the ceiling tiles and the walls, if it's not immediately obvious, of course, where there's mold growing, to see if there's any moisture things or potential mold growth. 
And we all know that mold can affect certain people that have, you know, some pre-existing conditions if they breathe it in, people with asthma, things like that. So it is, it, it can be an issue. So you have to do an evaluation, determine if there is mold there or has been mold there and what can be done about it. The, the, the main thing to do, of course, is to get rid of the water source yep. and, and, then, and then decide what sort of cleanup needs to be done of that, that building material, the walls, the ceiling tile or whatever. Have you seen some pretty, some pretty uh, nasty cases of, of big time mold? Yes. Yeah. I can think of one example. Um, a building with this company I used to work for had uh, an office area that was abutted up against the plant. The plant was on the backside and there was a wall between it, obviously, but the insulation apparently wasn't too good between the plant, which was not air conditioned, and the office area. So moisture had gotten into the wall there. And over the years, they had some holes start growing in that wall there because of the moist, hot plant environment on one side of the wall, meeting the wall on the other side with the office, air conditioned office environment. So when they went to remodel that office area, they started pulling sheetrock off and um the the whole insulation and wall uh behind under that sheetrock was just black and green with mold oh wow Wow. yeah so for probably many years the people in that office area were probably getting some some mold exposure wow yeah been interesting to see if people's uh allergies and all cleared up after the renovation yeah i didn't i didn't uh, get a chance to study that but it, it probably did they probably didn't even know it though Right, right. So a lot of, I mean, there's mold out in the regular environment and things like that. So are you comparing like acceptable levels or trying to determine, I mean, obviously if you've got a case like that, it's a large mold exposure, but is it, are you looking for kind of acceptable levels of certain chemicals or? Mold's a little different from chemicals in the workplace. You know, a, a chemical that you determine exposure for in the workplace usually has a standard from OSHA or somebody that you're comparing with. So you can see, is it good or bad? Mold's a little different. There are not air exposure standards for mold. So what we do is collect, if you're going to collect air samples at all, you collect air samples from inside the environment that you think is contaminated, like the office or whatever. Then you collect a sample outdoors on the same day and you compare. And uh, so the mold types should be about the same if there is no mold growth going on in the office environment. So you're, you're comparing indoor and outdoor. For so the- a lot of it depends on what part of the country you're in. If you're in a dry area, probably the mold exposure should be lower. And if it's here in Nashville where it's wet and everything, maybe higher. That is true. Um, Florida tends to have a lot of mold yeah. issues. <laughs> yes. Not much work for that in Arizona. <laughs> right, right, right. So, and, and, you know, by comparing indoor and outdoor samples, if, if they're, the mold types and levels are similar, you know there's not a mold problem indoors, but you can also tell people indoors, hey, there's such and such outdoors. This is probably just, aller- not just, but this is probably allergies or something coming from a, a normal type mold and not from indoors. So, so there's some uh, ways you can use that evaluation to, to um, give people some information about how, how, what's going on with their situation, their health situation. Cool. So hearing is a, a noise levels is also, you know, people over time being exposed to noises at, at work. And I've always, you know, I think it's hard for kind of the typical person to know what, 
what the different levels are and how you test for that. Do you do a lot of work in that round too? Or? Yes, of course, uh, noise and hearing conservation is a big part of IH. The, the last company I worked for, uh, about 30, 40% of my time was spent on noise and hearing conservation because they had uh, 11,000 people, I think, in the, in the hearing conservation program on the company. Wow. But, but um, yeah, noise levels, uh, of course, can damage hearing if you're exposed to high levels of noise over time. The typical, well, the OSHA level for uh, acceptable noise exposure for people to put people in the hearing conservation program is 85 decibels weighted over an eight hour time period. The typical types of things that you might think of that, 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 that generate noise to compare with that, like a rock concert is typically going to be 105 to 110 decibels. Um, I remember seeing uh, some NFL games, like I think it's Seattle, they have a decibel meter for the crowd noise. Right. <laughs> yes. And I think I've seen it up to 112 or 113 or something like that, which is very loud. A jet engine is 140. Wow. So. I, was a, I was a F-15 crew chief in the Air Force for, for 10 years. And uh, I cannot tell you how many times I've walked out of one of those and, you know, numerous times I've, I've not had, you know, my, my ear protection on and, and just been caught without them. And it is amazing how loud the jet engine is. And, you know, it's something that I was exposed to over a period of years. And there was a noticeable difference in my hearing uh, when I got out as opposed to when I went in. It's amazing. And it doesn't, it doesn't come back. No, I was just going to say, uh, your hair cells in your ear, once they get damaged, they don't come back. So, yeah. so it's important to protect your hearing. The 85 decibels for the OSHA hearing conservation program, you could compare that to a, um, like a leaf blower uh, is, is in the 86, 87 decibel range. A, a power lawnmower is usually about 90, 92. I wear my hearing protection when I cut the grass, but right. I, um, even though it's only an hour, but uh still a good idea to protect your hearing any, anytime you're around loud noise like that. So the 85 over an eight hour, that means, so if you are cutting your grass and I mean, you're doing a good job wearing your hearing protection, but that would just be an hour or so. So, so that's not as damaging to your hearing as if you're obviously cutting the grass eight hours a day. Is that kind of to explain the eight hours? Correct. Yes. So people, an eight hour shift, if you're exposed on that continuous basis to the 85 are going to have a greater chance to get their hearing damage than someone cutting the grass for one hour. Yeah. So I, I have all teenagers who love to listen to their eye, you know, their ear pods and iPods. What level is that coming into their ears? People listening to the radio and things like that. It depends on how loud they have the volume. <laughs> so. It, uh, those can get, you know, I, 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 I think I've read where they get around a hundred if they, you know, jack up that volume. Be interesting to see, uh, you know, because kids walk around with those all the time, or really a lot of people walk around with them all the time. What kind of damage that might possibly do to people's hearing over time? Yeah, yeah. At the at this the company I used to work for, we had an issue. People wanted to wear their earbuds with music for hearing protection, and um, some people, some of the employees would actually come with earbuds that they tried to make a case for, hey, these have a noise rating, but I can still pump music through here. And we had to tell them no, because we could never control how loud they would have that music set when they, when they were using it. Going back to school, I'm just fascinated. 
I don't think people realize how much of their ideas do to, to be qualified. How much imagery is there? Um, it, it, I mean, it, it's 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 just science based. You get uh, in the program I was in, you get classes in a lot of uh, toxicology, dermatology stuff right. with the skin, skin exposures, things like that, and of course the basics on how to use the equipment, labs, and things like that. Um, so it's definitely science based, but like any type of field, when, when you go to school, you, you only get so much of what you're really going to end up doing right. in, in the workplace. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sounds more varied, uh, a little more all over. That, I would imagine that would keep things interesting. You're looking at mold, you're looking at hearing protection. You're, I mean, that's a lot of different aspects versus just one. Right, um, right. It, it, it never gets boring. It never gets boring. The mold investigations are among my favorites because I'm, I like investigating and solving things and seeing that I can fix things. So that's, that's one of my favorites. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I also like uh, CSI and crime shows. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you go help, you know, you go work with a company, you, not only are you helping them find the problem, but you're also trying to help them come up with solutions to, to fix it. Oh yeah. That, that's what we're all about is, is trying to come up with solutions and fix it. it usually when I'm going in there, you kind of know there's a problem of some kind. Right. And it's and and what I'm doing is maybe taking some measurements to see how bad the problem might be. But the but the main thing is coming up with solutions and recommendations and helping them fix things, get rid of the problem. So it's not just the diagnosis and the measuring and all that. It really comes full circle to bringing some type of resolution to keep people safe. Right. It's I mean the uh, taking the measurements, getting the data, and collecting samples is just just one aspect of it. It's just it's, it's just giving me information to. Come, like I said, come up with the extent of the problem and help it come up with the solution. It's kind of like, you know, comparing it to the to the crime analogy, it's kind of like the DNA and the forensics leading up to what really happened and what they need, what what you need to do. Speaking of the crime, have you ever been called into, you know, a court case to be like an expert witness? No. Never, no. Never. <laughs> no. But I consider myself lucky that I haven't been. I'm sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it happens. Right. It, it happens. Um there are some in my field that that's what they do is they're, yeah. they're experts, to, you know, they testify for in, in cases and things like that. That's not, that's not really my, uh, my, my favorite thing to do. Yeah. I don't, it wouldn't be mine either. I know that there's industrial hygienists out there, but you're actually certified in it. Is there a lot more that goes into the certification? It's kind of rare to come across somebody that's got all the certification. Sure. sure. The certification is, um, well, there's a process like like any other field where you get a get an accreditation. It's it's there's a process. You have to have so much experience and uh, demonstrate uh, certain things through the experience. Then you have to take an exam, and then you have to after you get the certification, you have to maintain it, which is of course through continuing education and writing papers. There's a lot of different things you can do to maintain your certification, like like most any other certifications that that are out there. So you have to maintain it. So what do you like to do when you're not uh, studying mold? Oh boy, uh, I play a little golf whenever yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, I go on uh, probably two or three different golf trips to different places around the country every year. Right. Golf can be very scientific. Scientific. So. You know it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, you know a little bit about there's a little physics and things involved yeah. there with hitting yeah. a golf ball. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Very frustrating. Yes. Well, I appreciate you coming. This was really informative. Uh, I feel like IH is one of those parts of the safety field that 
everybody knows a little bit about and appreciates, but doesn't really, you know, there's a lot of big exposures there, whether they be health exposures or, you know, a facility blowing up. I think a lot of times people look at those combustible dusts when they make the news because 14 people die or something like that. And it's like, wow, that was a freak accident. But you've kind of shown today that they're not really as freak accidents as, as people kind of think and that there are ways to prevent that. So it's been really interesting hearing how we do that. But we really appreciate you coming out today and joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed yep. it. Thanks, Tom. And uh, have a safe trip home. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. 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 Thanks for listening today to The Safety Exchange with myself, Larissa Featherstone, and my co-host, Justin Gray. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. And if you would like to be featured on a future podcast or have an idea for a topic, please leave us a comment on our social media. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JA underscore safety or on Facebook and LinkedIn at Johnston & Associates. Thanks so much for joining us. 